Welcome to the Hot Potato Food and Beverage Impact Talk podcast, where we discuss how sustainability revolutionizes business practices in the food and beverage industry worldwide. I'm your host, Elisa Gramlich, co-founder of Inoco. And today we have Hendrik Hase, who is much more than a food activist. He is a publicist, communication designer, consultant and keynote speaker who brings passionate enthusiasm for food, food culture and the future of our food in times of ecological and technological change. Hendrik Hase has made a name for himself, in particular through his exploration of the digitization of food. In his book, Food Code, he explores how digital technologies are changing our food world and the role that sustainability innovation and technology play in the process. In this episode, we'll discuss the current state of European food tech startups and how they are embracing technology and sustainability. Thank you, Hendrik, Thank you for very, very much today. for having me. <laughs> yeah, please tell us a bit about yourself and your background. What sparked your interest in sustainability? When I go back in my history, it's, it's my grandmother's garden where I discovered my first peas and my first fruits and berries and all that kind of stuff. And she was cooking a lot and... Um, during my studies as a communications designer, uh, I had nothing to do with food really and with sustainability. But at that time, I was discovering that food is so much more than just taste and, you know, buying it. And of course, I'm a millennial and I was asking these questions. Where is my food coming from? What is happening in the food industry? What about transparency? And of course, what is it, what about sustainability? And then I discovered, oh my God, food is so much more and food is an identity. And then I dug deep into the world of food. I visited farms. I'd spoken to industry leaders and uh, visited lots of conferences. And yeah, and then I ended up with this question, how do we change the food system? How do we make it more transparent, more sustainable? And but, but my goal in the end was always, how do I find more delicious foods that are, you know, tastier, fruits that are riper, um, meat products that I can trust? You know, the whole way wasn't in the end, I wasn't a vegan. <laughs> in the end, I started a butchery. Maybe we talk about this later. Um, but I was really interested to to get into the backgrounds of food and and yeah, and the whole technological part that we're also going to talk about today came a little bit later when I found out that lots of the technologies that I use to find food or to reconnect myself with farmers and with chefs and find new restaurants and find new food trends. That was all based on yeah digital tools that I use every day. So I also dug deep into this field and yeah, here I am. <laughs> Great. So did you also try gardening or farming yourself? And maybe you can tell us a bit uh, about that butchery because uh, I would be curious to know us from a climate perspective, what your view is on that. <laughs> Uh, I had a part of a farm once, uh, which is called uh, Community Supported Agriculture. Um, right now with a small family, I don't have the time anymore to spend so much time on the fields. Um, but I, I did some practica on farms. And uh, uh, when I visited farms, I stayed there overnight or for a week or something. And still on my holidays, I'm, I'm visiting you know, agricultural uh, 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 farms and, 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 and companies. Um, so I have a wide view on that. And also as a photographer, I visited a lot of farms. Um, 
I don't know if I'm a good practitioner. Uh, I don't want to compare myself as, you know, uh, as a good farmer or something, because that's a job that you have to be trained in. The same goes with people that work in a butchery. I found a butcher during my research for my uh, book before Food Code, which was about the new meat culture, about butcheries worldwide and farmers that uh, were on the way to produce the whole term like less but better meat. And I wanted to find out who is doing it, what is the visual culture behind it, how do, the, how do they represent themselves out there, and what are the cool stories behind their businesses. So I wrote this book, and this is out in the Gestalten, which is a German design book uh, uh, company. And during that time, I also needed some recipes in the back of the book about sausages about German sausage recipes and I found a butcher here in Berlin and during that period we thought about maybe let's not just do the book and do some recipes maybe we should do a whole new concept of, of a butchery and then we had this idea of a, of a glass and of a glass butchery which is you know made of glass um, so you can see us splitting up the kids, not killing them. That's not possible in a, in a city. Um, and also not pretty useful um, to have so many people around when, when an animal is slaughtered. But we had the half of the pig or, or whole parts of beef and we were, you know, cutting them right in front of the customers and we were producing sausages in front of the customers. And this was all behind glass in an old market hall here in Berlin. And people really loved it. I, we were really skeptic about, you know, It's our idea. We were used to this world. Uh, he as a butcher himself and me as, as a researcher and as a designer and as a meat friend. Um, but in the end, uh, people weren't shocked by this. They were more interested and they sent people to us and say like, yeah, let's go there. They, at least they try to be uh, transparent. And my job also was to go to the farms, do video content. I mean, I was the social media guy and I was there with a 360 degrees camera, you know, like a panoramic camera on a, on a pig farm. And I was in the slaughterhouse for our, um, uh, for the chickens. So I told basically the story behind our meat and this was part of the whole thing. And of course we were inviting also NGOs like the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, they did a video at our thing and we weren't rejecting the whole discussion of like how sustainable is meat and how can it be sustainable. Um, but I learned a lot about meat before as an author and then as a practitioner in a way with the butchery because you end up with whole other problems and uh, uh, yeah, really tricky situations where you have to decide what is the right way to do it. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to reduce the meat consumption from a climate perspective. But if you then consume high quality meat and make the whole production process transparent, I think this is a very good way to go and a very cool initiative to have this um, transparent butchery um, that you did. Um, you also mentioned your book before, which was published in 2021, where you discussed the impact of artificial intelligence and digitalization on our food system. And in this book, you mentioned how AI is shaping the industry and highlighted the changes in how we discover and access food. Additionally, you also explored the future of farming and raised questions about whether farmers will continue to work in the fields or if robots will take over. Um, what is your view on that and what are some of the main findings of your book? It's funny, right? When we put it out, this book I wrote together with a journalist, Olaf Deininger, uh, from Germany. Um, 
uh, when we put out the book, every, we had to explain what artificial intelligence is really. People knew the term, but they couldn't connect it really to food or to their life. And since last December, we had this iPhone moment with ChatGPT. Everybody somehow thinks I know about AI and I know how it works. Um, but of course, it's, it's a nice entry door for people to, to, to get into this field and understand that something is changing there with all these image generators and these large language models. Um, the discussion is going on. Um, but at the beginning of my research with the book, I, I remember situations where I was in, in, in California in the Silicon Valley where I was reading out of my last book about meat in front of these people from Alphabet and Meta. They were so into food and they told me about their projects, about the robots they built at Google, at uh, the, the Googleplex, uh, which was right around the corner. So I asked them to join them for their Mensa and went to their huge food hall that they have there for lunch. And I saw that the tech industry is really into food. And then I thought, hmm, is the food scene really into tech? And that wasn't the case. And nobody really, uh, really was observing this whole, you know, development, this transformation, this revolution that is happening between the fields and the fork, basically. And so I said, Let's do this from farm to fork, like every step of the supply chain. Let's let's have a look how digital technologies and especially artificial intelligence is interfering with processes, with our food culture and whatever. And um, my findings were that not many people knew about it, but it was amazing to see all these startups popping out everywhere. And I always called it like the startup thunderstorm because we were writing the book and then I was just researching and then had, okay, there's this startup and this and this and this and this. And then we was like, oh, we can't write a whole page of startups that are working in the field and that are so interesting. So I saw there a huge development, but on the political side, so regulations or politicians that, you know, in Germany, we have the Greens, uh, the Green Party in the, in the government who want to transform our food system. And when I talk to them, and even now, <laughs> when the book is already two years old, and they are in charge uh, for quite some time uh, about the, our food system here in Germany, they still somehow don't know about the scale of this transformation. They don't know really how these algorithms are interfering with our food system. They don't really know about the risks. And it, it really pains me that they don't see the, the need for for doing something about it, you know, understanding these mechanisms, understanding startups, understanding their power of, you know, changing the whole food system to a sustainable better. <laughs> But they also don't understand them in terms of like, the, where are the risks, you know? And that made me in the end very concerned because lots of the digital infrastructure is not in the hands of, of European or European companies. Um, the regulation is far behind. They talk a lot about it, but if you really go into the papers from the European Parliament or from the national, national government here in Germany, it's nothing really concrete, nothing really that you can you know count on if it really comes to very sensible questions, how we're going to use this technology in the future. So this was quite a trip. And since then, I had to, you know, let my butchery run on its own. So I uh, dropped out of there and really cared since since then, uh, since the book came out, I really just do this like tech stuff, because I think it's, it's, it's so important for our future uh, in both ways, uh, you know, <laughs> good and bad. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I think startups also like Inoko can definitely be front runners in this uh, sustainability transformation. But like you said, they are also very dependent from the 
regulatory framework. Um, so um, maybe you could give some examples how artificial intelligence or new technologies like blockchain could transform the food industry. I mean, when I told you how my, my, my Vita was, uh, I think one of the most initial moments of, of the millennial generation, but also I think of Gen Z is, we want to know where our food came from and not, you know, trust some kind of brand or some kind of seal that we, you know, put a sticker on the plastic package and say like, yeah, it's organic, it will be fine. And then you're like, yeah, but it's not from here. Where is it really from? It's organic. Don't ask questions. And um, there are so many seals and labels on the market that some people can't really <laughs> say what the other or the this one really means. So I think blockchain might be a technology to really secure every step of the production process. Um, I talked to people from IBM that develop crypto anchors, which can be, a, which can also swim in oil. You don't taste them; they don't have any. Um, at least that's what they say. Uh, <laughs> they don't interfere with your body or with the chemicals in your in your stomach. But you can really trace back oil. You can really trace back whatever liquid you you introduce these crypto anchors to. That was one finding where I was like, oh my god, this far is this technology already. Uh, and on the other hand, I discovered uh, startups that you know put sensors at every step of the you know food chain from the apple tree uh, over the container to the shop. And then you can really trace back apples, for instance, from Mongolia back to Germany, where they where the apples grow. Um, the thing is to really not fall into this uh, magic belief that blockchain will solve everything. You have to understand this technology and have to ask the right questions because also this is fantastic and really fascinating. But I think it's also sometimes this magic thinking of like yeah artificial intelligence and blockchain will solve it all and i think we shouldn't fall into this <laughs> trap um but use it if it's really useful and i see ways to use it uh, but we have to understand it and we have to have startups that do it uh, the example that i brought from the apple uh, um, which was sent from germany to mongolia the startup that made it was from mongolia <laughs> and not from germany what was quite a surprise for me um, so this is why I think we should develop these technologies or at least understand them here in Europe to to really do some solid stuff with them and not just fall into some magic talk from startups uh, that are quite good in America. They always do this like, oh, my God, we solve everything. <laughs> and they fall into this uh, hall of like uh, too much magic thinking and not really be into realistic terms, especially when it comes to food, because you probably know, too, at uh, Inoko that food is so complicated you know it's not kind of it's not a screw it's it's not even a car with like maybe a few thousand parts it's it's biochemistry it's it's it, there's so much involved and if you really want to count everything into your calculation if it's sustainability or animal welfare you have to really understand the problems on the farm uh, over the whole delivery change and and this, i think that is going to make the quality difference in the future and i think that is a lot of work you probably do at inoko <laughs> but um, lots of starters had to do it and we as consumers but also as regulators as uh, the people that trade this stuff or the farmers they should know about this technology uh, to use it for good yeah it's very fascinating yeah, like you said, we at Inoko also try to bring transparency into the value chain. And I hope that those new technologies will help us, but also all the producers 
um, to get the necessary data for these uh, sustainability evaluations and to understand the processes better. Um, but of course, it's not so easy to implement and uh, also to kind of spread the word. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that you also bring together um, the different actors like the tech industry and the food industry and the farmers. I think that's very important to facilitate this exchange of these two very different worlds. We're missing a lot of education for farmers, uh, for instance. I mean, they already work with a lot of technology. I mean, it's it's a quite romantic understanding of farming or food producing when you still think they ride their horses to the field and <laughs> dig in the ground or whatever. They are already sitting on huge machines that costs uh, a normal tractor costs, I don't know, 200 300, 400,000 euro, and they are stuffed with electronics. Right now it's GPS, and, and but some are already using AI or computer vision, these cameras that can detect what, what are weeds in front of the tractor or can detect the, the ripeness of the fruit that the tractor is driving through, whatever. Um, but I think uh, if they don't want to be dependent on some tech giant in the end and, and our whole food system to be dependent on a tech giant because they deliver the whole processing of these data uh, points and they deliver the whole cloud tech technology. Um, disclaimer, there is no cloud technology in Europe that is in public hands. This uh, Gaia-X cloud, uh, where all the health data should be and also the agriculture data supposed to be, it's, or it's, it's still in development. It's not there anymore. So we're depending already on, on big uh, companies like Amazon, IBM, Microsoft to store this data to process these data points and it's fine that they're doing that i don't want to you know spread misinformation but uh the thing is i don't see it very useful that we have just three companies you know dealing with the whole data and the whole technology that we have in the food world so we should be there more diverse we have we should regulate this whole stuff more meaning not to shorten the possibilities of data mining and data processing but to do it more regulated, more transparent, that we that we not end up with new monopolists that you know know everything about every inch of soil in Germany and Austria and Switzerland and France. Um, I think that is public good, and and we should uh, use this technology for public good. Uh, that's still my understanding of of, the, uh, of uh, democracy. Um, but on this way, we have to understand it, and farmers have to understand it, and food producers have to understand it, and. When I do keynotes and if I talk to people, they heard about it. They sometimes use it in their tractors, like I said, or in their factories. But they somehow don't have the thinking of like I call it some kind of digital culture, because when you t when you think in data, you think different than thinking in apples or thinking in uh, whatever, because data thinking is, is something different and um if you if we talk about self-learning algorithms, we have to think in data and what data means and what more data means, what good data means. And I think this is not very common <laughs> among farmers, but I think in the future they have to do. Otherwise, they won't survive or they will be very dependent on other companies, which is, I think, not good. Yeah, true. And what are the advantages and risks that are associated with the digitalization of the food industry and agriculture? Do you think that um, artificial intelligence is also problematic? I think we will have the same problems as we have with uh, artificial intelligence right now. 
um, which is a complete fails uh, uh, output. <laughs> what we get when uh, these algorithms are trained with uh, not so good data or not so diverse data. So we have the same problems. Uh, we will have the same problems in the food world that than we have in the human world. Um, there's this famous example where people couldn't uh, dry their hands at an airport because the hand dryer was trained with white skin and nobody trained it with black skin. So people with black or, or darker skin couldn't use it because it wasn't recognized as skin. So this is a very <laughs> raw and strict, uh, uh, but break it down to apples. If, if, if some uh, apple uh, breeds or, or animals that we, that we will need in the future uh, are not recognized or are badly recognized, illnesses of, of animals on the farm that are not recognized, um, dangerous microbes that some kind of magic AI that is supposed to push up our food safety is not recognizing them because it was trained with American data and it doesn't have all the, I don't know, salmonella stems from Europe. <laughs> I'm, I'm making these uh, uh, examples up. But you see there, there are lots of mistakes uh, that happen, uh, especially if we think about artificial intelligence. I don't like this term because it promises so much. Um, if we think it's magic, it's always an algorithm that learns with data. And if this data is good or bad, the outcome is good or bad. It's garbage in, garbage out. It's an old rule of <laughs> programming or of tech. Um, so we have to have an eye on that. And um, yeah, and the speed at which these things are happening. Um, and um, I, I, the last days I was digging deep into the problems of TikTok um, and its um, influence on, on food culture and health for young people. And there are some really disturbing studies where the algorithm pushes um, content that is pushing uh, people uh, into uh, rabbit holes of anorexia, of eating disorders, of somehow healthy, but in the end, dangerous um, diets. Um, and nobody, in my point of view, from the regulators is really looking on this media in this kind of way. I mean, um, these kind of rabbit holes, they can easily appear on social media and like experts say, social media like Facebook was our first encounter with artificial intelligence. Um, the timeline on Facebook and that first encounter wasn't running very good. <laughs> Our democracy didn't uh, really uh, became healthier with Facebook. Um, and I think the second encounter with large language models with even more, you know, potentious algorithms in the food world, um, especially um, shouldn't be unsupervised and shouldn't just you know, run out of hand. That's why our book had the undertitle How We Keep Control in a World of Digitalized Food. Um, because I think it's really about control and it's about food culture that has to be implemented in these systems, in these training sets, in these algorithms. Because otherwise they run around free with all their false predictions and with all their hallucinations. I don't know if everybody knows what I'm talking about because hallucinations are the mistakes that for instance ChatGPT is making if ChatGPT is making something up uh, i asked them about it in my vita <laughs> this this chatbot and he told uh, some true stuffs and then he inserted like Hendrik Hase wrote a vegan food book uh, called blah 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 and this was totally made up also my birth date was totally made up um, i can say hey, that's a mistake, but somebody else who tried it maybe would have taken it for granted and thought like, oh yeah, Henrik Haas is making vegan footballs, which is not true. So if we want to 
don't want this to happen. We have to really care about this uh, new technology. And I'm talking a lot about critic, uh, critical stuff here and uh, about the dark side of this, but I see the potential. I see a lot of good stuff that is coming out of these machines. Don't get me wrong, but uh, we really also have to see on the other side to make the potentials even bigger. Yeah, thank you. Um, what is your opinion on the current state of European tech? Like, how does it compare to other regions, for example, in terms of startup growth or government support or innovativeness and uh, sustainability focus? I, I just wrote a piece for the German Agrarzeitung, uh, which is a newspaper for, for agronomists and for, um, uh, for farmers um, about the horrible state or how our government is failing uh, to 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 support a food tech uh, environment that is finding solutions for our sustainable future. I said this because I was listening to keynotes from uh, the Ministry of Food and Agriculture in Germany, and they told, "Yeah, we're quite, we're doing quite fine with startup funding, and you know, it's technology is so nice and it has so much potential." And blah blah. And I, I'm listening to these speeches since years. It it's always the same. Like everybody hopes that this technology will have the potential, blah, but nobody. Uh, in my point of view, is really doing something, at least here in Germany, political-wise, to, to, to do this, to, to build up the structure, uh, to build up an ecosystem that is really strong and invites investors to invest in these companies that are, you know, bringing the innovations to market here in Germany or in Europe. And Germany, for, for instance, is really falling behind. We are not in, in the top 10 anymore. Or I think we don't never have been there of the countries that with the most investments in food tech. Um, we're even in Europe, we are falling behind with minus 78% of investments um, when you follow studies. So it's, it's really a horrible situation right now for students to, to find money or to find support. Um, so when you're politicians, I wouldn't go out and say like we're doing pretty pretty well, and um, you can't really say that. Um, when I look around the world, even in Indonesia and Turkey, there are more investments into food tech than in Germany, and this is this is the situation right now. Um, I see a lot of potential in the in, in, in the universities and also when I look into the startup uh, environment in the startup universe, it's, it's a lot of people, it's colorful, good ideas, mostly focused on sustainability, um, alternative protein, but also on meat, sustainability, uh, or you said that, but transparency, supply chain. Um, but if they don't find money and, and money only goes where investors are a little bit sure that their money is in good hands because there is some kind of regulatory framework or at least some environment where their money is, you know, thriving, they won't invest it. And Germany does not have the structure yet, in my point of view. And that's why I see the, the politics in the role of building this up, not financing startups, because that's why they always got me wrong, because They, yeah, we can't fund any startup. And like, you don't have to fund startups. That's, that's not your role, but you have to build an environment around it. And if I look to Israel, if I look to the Netherlands, if I look also California, people are really doing something for a regulatory framework in a way, but also um, politicians and investors are working on more um, stable ecosystem. And if you look into the anal uh, analytics and, and also the studies, that came out uh, beginning of this year, you can really see that the drop of investments, because 
it's everywhere right now um, of venture capital is not so hard in countries where this kind of ecosystem for food tech startups exists. Um, so that's why I always say, do something for it and don't tell me you're doing pretty good, <laughs> although it's not true. Yeah. yeah. And um, do you have any suggestions how we can also involve um, smaller green rural producers better so that they can benefit from those new technologies? I think they have to get into the pool of, of knowledge. Um, It's, it's so funny because um, during my research, or I'm still researching on this whole topic, um, I find like uh, farmers in China doing, uh, they're selling their goods from their field directly over a live stream on the Chinese, China version of TikTok. Um, they all have their smartphone in, in their pocket and they know the power of it. Um, I read books about, uh, there's one I can, you know, for the show notes, I'm going to send you the link Um the blockchain chicken farm and other stories from rural China where they still, where they already use all these kind of technologies. Um, sometimes I think Europe is a little bit behind because farmers are thinking, yeah, I don't need this new stuff. Although they already use it because they don't see it in their tractors, <laughs> but they think they can live without it. Um, I think they have to know about the potentials. That's what I say about being in, in, in the knowledge pool. Know about the potentials, know about the risks, know about what they can do and not being, you know, fed with these lines in Germany. It's always like the, the farmers have to be the owners of their data. And I always say like, what a crappy sentence because, yeah, they can own their data, but what do they do with it? I mean, <laughs> It would be the same if you say, like, the farmers should own their potatoes. No, they, they earn when they sell it or they sell products made of, out of potatoes. So I think farmers should earn something with their data. That would be the right question. And we have to think about the structures in which this can happen uh, or how they can profit from giving out the data, for instance, to Inoko. So you can do something with it and the products that are enhanced with your digital service are more worth than the ones that don't. So farmers has to ha have to understand that if they produce their data with their fruit or with their vegetable, or with their meat, they can have more for their meat, more for their potato, whatever. But this is a whole different talk than telling them, and this is what the politicians here in Germany always did, like, yeah, we want to protect your data and you can have your own data. And farmers said, yeah, I don't want to give anything. And it's like, What a bullshit talk. So they're cut away from a talk that would be more suitable for them. So they are really profiting from these digital technologies. There are examples um, like, I don't know, crowd farming. If you know, I'm really a big fan of this app uh, where you can order online directly from farms from, from uh, Italy, from Spain two Spanish guys that did it um, and, and it's the best. I got papayas from them. I got uh, oranges from them. And it's really, really good quality because the farmers know their price. They harvest when the fruit is in the perfect shape and the perfect ripeness and not when the price is right. I know about the water usage of every farm. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And it, but these farmers, if you talk to them, they know the potential of the technologies, how, how it makes their farm grow. And they, they are not fearing to give any data away because they profit from it. And we have to get into this game and not the other one. So for smaller ones, I think we have to educate them more, teach them more and, and show them the potential of it. And if they get it, I think they will all use it, uh, but use it in a more, you know, um, sovereign way and not, you know, just giving away their data. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's very interesting. I definitely need to check out. <laughs> It's very delicious. And also, <laughs> yeah, 
And I think there are also now more um, online platforms for rural producers, like Magda in Austria, for example, where small um, sustainable farmers can promote their products, but in a modern digital way on a marketplace. And I think that's also very helpful. And like you said, if um, the farmers communicate their data, it also brings more transparency into the market and creates trust um, among the consumers. So I think they can profit from that because consumers usually prefer to buy more um, sustainable food products where they know how their food is produced, how the animals are treated and so on. So I think there are definitely many incentives um, for farmers also. To be Maybe we can come up with a, with a yeah. uh, term right, yeah. I'm thinking right now. Um, because like I told you, in, uh, my, my background was in taste. I re really wanted to know what is, where are the specialities? Where are the, where's the good stuff? Where's the stuff that is not tasteless like most of the stuff in the supermarket? So my, my thinking is still, if you know more about your food, Where it comes from, how much CO2 is in it, uh, where the what kind of grass the cow ate, or <laughs> the the water, how much water drink, it will always get you, or the most part, it always gets you a tastier product, and and I think that is a that is one of the core motivations of people because if you eat a product that is way much more better than the one that you had before, and it it, it is a correlation with knowing more about it being more transparent, giving the farmer more money. I mean, it's of course, if you give somebody more money, he will deliver a better product in most cases. Um, I think it's a good motivation. It's more motivating than just saying, hey, you're saving some CO2. I mean, that's a very abstract thinking. Um, but I think if you care more about these things and, it, uh, and, and if digital technologies make it more easier so you can participate in it and you don't have to farm a, a phone a farmer in, in Spain and somehow trickily order your fruits, it's just a click in the app. And the app reminds you when there is the harvest of the oranges and they are perfectly ripe. Then it's a good way to get more tastier products. And I think that is a really strong motivation for people to change their diets. Not just to say, if you want to save CO2, just eat less meat. Then people always have the fear that somebody's taking them something away. That's why I started the butchery. Because we said, if you eat less meat, it should taste better. You know, and, and that's a good way to eat less meat if it tastes better uh, because you, you, you're you not losing anything. <laughs> you just uh, save the environment a little bit. So I think that that's a good way to go. But uh, I think it's a long way for people to understand that more data means proper, in, in lots of cases, more data and better processing of this data means more delicious products. Um, but I hope that this, <laughs> this line somehow gets in the heads of farmers and also in, uh, of customers. Yeah, that's a very good point and already brings me to my last or almost last question. Um, do you have any certain message that you want to give to farmers or the government, um, for example, or to the startups? Uh, for farmers uh, and producers, I would say play around with these technologies whenever you have the time. Um, because then you're the first to know about it and it loses this, you know, it's a magic thing. You, you somehow see the errors and if you play around with it, you're not like overwhelmed the, with with the uh, influence that these technologies will have in the future. So I th say play around with it, uh, but but make it with a, you know, open mind, but also with a critical mind. Um look around you what already technologies you're using and and that technology is not something totally new in your world so it's just something new that you maybe have to adapt to but the earlier you do it the better connect network uh, i don't 
have to say that, but in your network, you should also think about politics. I think uh, if you have listened to us up, up until this point, you will see that lots of the you know successes of these uh, technologies depend on good regulations, uh, a good framework, good uh, infrastructure, and this is built by um, laws and uh, by regulations made by politicians. So you should really also tackle them and not being misled by their Ah, it's everything is beautiful. Technology will take every. Ah, it's gonna be. Be It's not enough. You have to ask them. What are you doing? When will it happen? And what's the use for me? You know. And don't let them just spit out yet their 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 marketing claims for their politics. Um, I think I think that's it. What what I want to say for for startups, um, for politicians, I would say um, it's gonna be a huge problem or a huge potential, uh, and you have to care about it. And if you're not, I think. You're wrong in politics if you don't know that food is already strongly connected with tech and that AI is already working in the food uh, world and uh, you have to care about it. Yeah, thank you. And now our last question because uh, our yeah, yeah, yeah. is called Hot Potato. So what's your favorite I was asked recipe? for a climate uh, a book also about my favorite recipe and I said it's just a potato with butter and salt but the whole recipe that I wrote it's not about the measurements like how much potatoes and how much salt blah, blah. I just wrote a whole recipe what is the best potato what is the best salt and what for me is the best butter so I just wrote them like like a shopping uh, guide um, and for me my I love the potato called Bamberger Hörnla which is a small it's it's like a hörnchen i don't know the right english term um it's 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 like a small roll it is a very old potato because uh, farmers imported it from south america when the last potato pest was uh, the, you know the illness of potatoes was in europe so they imported it to crossbreed with with european potatoes at that time to make them more stronger against diseases but that way we got this like very ancient potato <laughs> from south america and it It's fantastic for a potato salad, but also just with butter. And butter, sometimes I really go long ways to get good butter because I don't like this super homogenic butter. I, I like it from the, you know, where they really make it. Uh, it's not always done by hand, but there are these, I don't know, butterfass. It's like a machine that, uh, you know, um, turns the, the milk and then the cream and then the butter comes out of it. And I really like this Rohmilch butter, which is made of raw milk. And then the salt should not be like this supermarket salt, which is just, you know, flowing away. It should be like these crystals. I like that from, from, from England or from, from France. But they are also good salts from, uh, uh, from, from, from the German coasts. So you see how much knowledge you can put into just a potato with butter and salt. But in the end, you get a very, very tasty thing. Um, But you have to know where your stuff is coming from, what it's quality like, what it tastes like. And if we can use technology for all of this, everybody can sh could do this right away. We just send out some links. But right now, um, they are not the right apps for it. So anybody who is out there, build it <laughs> for just good potatoes. It, we need it. Yeah. <laughs> That's very impressive. I think I should do a food tasting with you. Potatoes are so nice. They're so, these, yeah, and we just have a few of them. I mean, in Germany, in a supermarket, they are sold like, this is a potato that is stays hard when you cook it, and this is going to fall apart. It's perfect for puree. This is the only you know, difference between these. And they don't tell you the name. They don't, and, and, I, and I don't understand it. If you would sell wine like this, nobody would buy 
a wine that is more than a few euro because everybody would just go for like red or wine, uh, red or white. But we know so much about wine and the grapes and the right producer and the right, you know, whatever. Um, I think we do, should do the same with vegetables and with meat and with everything. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree because it's very important to also promote these old types of um, potatoes and other vegetables. Of course, yes. Biodiversity, for example. Um, so there should definitely be more variety also in the supermarkets. Yeah. But thank you very much for your time today, Hendrik. Um, yeah, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Hot Potato Food and Beverage Impact Talk, in which we discussed the role of technology and explored what European startups can do in that field and how more data and new technologies can actually facilitate the sustainability transformation and also increase the quality of our food. Um, so that's all for today, everyone. Thank you for listening and remember to stay sustainable. Inoco is an AI-powered sustainability solution that empowers retailers, F&B brands and suppliers to analyze and improve the impact of their products throughout their entire value chain. With in-depth assessments and optimization tools, Inoco helps businesses make data-driven decisions to drive success in sustainability. If you would like to know more about us, why not follow us on social media? Find us on LinkedIn by simply searching for Inoco or follow the link in this episode's notes. You can also email us directly at hello at inoco.com.